Bismillah. All right, Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Um, this is going to sound really bad. Has, did anyone see my wife come in? She can't, okay, I just got a little bit worried about the kids. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> all the kids over there, like, doing their own thing. It's Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, measure the Sunday class. All right. <laughs> all right, bismillah. Uh, bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu تبن قلوبي ودوائها وعافية الأبدان وشفائها والنور الأبصار وضيائها وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد صلاة تنجينا بها من جميع الأهوال والآفات وتقتلنا بها جميع الحاجات وتطهرنا بها من جميع السيئات وترفعنا بها عندك على الدرجات وتبلغنا بها أكثر غايات من جميع الخيرات في الحياة وبعد الممات الصلاة والسلام عليك يا سيدي يا رسول الله بسم الله uh, Before I forget we have session next Sunday, and then after next Sunday, no session for three weeks, I think it is, right? Because we leave for Umrah on Saturday, the 18th. We don't come back until the following Monday. And then after that, we're going to be out of town again. So three, uh, three Sundays. We won't have a program. And then we'll probably have one, maybe two Sundays, and then we'll be on winter break for a week or two. <laughs> so, sorry, it's the uh, end of the year, it gets a little bit choppy. But inshallah, with the new year, we'll be back and steady until Ramadan, inshallah. Perhaps through Ramadan, I don't remember what we do in Ramadan, inshallah. Alright, so we left off uh, in the text of Futuwa, Noble Character, by Dr. Rajab Senturk. May Allah preserve him. We left off on point number 15. Offer help before being asked for it. Offer help before being asked for it. SubhanAllah. Uh, I saw this this morning. SubhanAllah. Someone came in this morning and they saw something that I'll try to keep it as anonymous as possible. Someone, I saw them come in, and I saw them as soon as they came in, they looked and they saw something that needed to be done, and then they just went and did it very quietly, and it got done, mashallah. And I was like, wow, that's really good, mashallah. Allah preserve this individual, will even leave their gender anonymous. So offer help before being asked for it. It is narrated that a man named Masruq and his friend Khaytama both had heavy debts. Instead of paying their own debts, Masruq paid Khaytama's debt without his knowledge, and Khaytama paid Masruq's debt without his knowledge. <laughs> There's some potential fit questions around that. Like, <laughs> shouldn't they be paying off their own debt first? There's a, que there's, <laughs> there's a question on that. Uh, but we should try to focus on the point. They always say, that it's not appropriate to get caught up in the details of the example. Just take the example for what it's for and don't nitpick the example too much. So we'll just take the example for what it's for. One of the most important qualities of the feta is that he constantly serves others and helps them. When offering help, the feta observes a set of adab, etiquette. One of the most important adab of futuwa in this regard is to avoid intimidating or hurting others. When this adab is not observed, what might seem to be a good deed may in fact have adverse effects. Hmm, it's an interesting one. Another rule of futuwa is to offer help before being asked for it. In order to do so, the feta constantly watches over the conditions of his friends and colleagues. When he feels that they need help, he helps them without waiting for them to bow down and ask for help. 
How can a person who is unaware of his friend's needs be a true friend? Likewise, how can a person who has forced his friends to bow down and ask for help be a true friend? MashaAllah. It's very strong. The idea, as has come up before, is that this person who's going to try to have noble character, one of the two overarching principles, number one, is that they have to be uh, attentive of themselves. Right? To have some sort of inner understanding and knowledge that I have this tendency, I have that tendency, I have this shortcoming, and to watch out for it. Okay, right now I'm being overwhelmed with anger. Right now I'm being overwhelmed with um, patience, maybe. Sometimes some people are too patient. Right now I'm being overwhelmed with gratitude, whatever. They're paying attention to themselves. And then in doing so, they also are going to develop a capacity to pay attention to another person. So there's a general elevated awareness. That there's an awareness that helps them to pay attention to themselves. There's also an awareness that helps them to pay attention to others. And, in, and then they pay attention to the other person and they try to think. Okay, without, uh, without overthinking, by the way. Because sometimes when we want to help other people too much, we start manufacturing things to help them in. So we're like, so it, there's a balance here. We don't want to be too much with it. Right, so that we're kind of like imposing now, hey, here's this, I think they need help with this, and then they don't really, you know. <laughs> and then it just becomes overburdening and kind of patronizing and stuff like that. We don't want to do that either, right? But the person has some sort of awareness that, okay, this is, maybe I can do this for them, maybe I can do that for them. And in everyday stuff, sometimes it's more clear. Like, oh, it seems like they might need help with this, let me ask them, so on. And, uh, and to be able to do that before the person has to ask is ideal. Is ideal. However, uh, that's hard, right? And we should always remember what's the rule when we talk about matters of adab, etiquette. The rule is always we're looking for how we are going to apply the etiquette, not how others apply it to us. So we don't want to hear this and start thinking, well, so-and-so, nobody helped me with this thing before I asked, I had to ask, I had to humiliate myself and ask, and so on and so forth. If there's something that I need to ask, I ask. Uh, if there's some, if someone didn't help me before I was able, I had to ask them, it's okay. You know, maybe they're still sincere, maybe they didn't notice. We make excuses for them, right? But when it comes to what we want to do, we want to try to be aware of other people so that we can help them before they have to ask for help. This issue of, you know, putting the focus in the right place is extremely important. Because think about this concept itself, right? The idea that I want to try to help someone before they have to ask for help. Ideally, this is something that builds community and helps community, right? I'm, all of us are looking out for others in this way. Ideally, that helps and builds community, right? If the angle is right. If the angle is flipped and it becomes all of, how come nobody helped me before I had to ask for help, which is the wrong side of it, then the same concept that's supposed to build community will actually break it. Right? Same concept. Same concept. It should have helped and it should have built community and brought people together. Same concept will break, break community and take, take people apart. Right? So it's very, very important. It's not... Uh, one of the key issues actually in life, but especially in Islamic studies, is not just to understand the idea. I mean, mashallah, alhamdulillah, our tradition is vast, we have all kinds of ideas. But to understand the idea in the right place. Because if you understand, you take every idea, if you put it in the wrong place, it creates big problems. You know, and we've probably seen that in our lives. And this is one of the big issues around understanding. You know, what's, probably you've you heard me say this before is that when, when we think about the understanding that we have of our religion and why, uh, maybe if I remember, I'll come back to this thing that's in my head right now. One of the issues of understanding is we think about it like there's furniture right in our head and the furniture has to be arranged properly. It's not just an issue that there's furniture. <laughs> I don't want just furniture in my house, right? It's like, alhamdulillah, I have a couch and I have a bed and I have a dinner table and I have a bookshelf, and I have an end table. 
Okay, but why did you put the couch in the bathroom? I just needed a couch, you know, so I put it in the bathroom. The bed is in the living room, like by the front door. Why did you put the front door? Like, but I have a bed. I was supposed to have a bed in my house. Yeah, but the bed is in the wrong place, right? So it's not just a matter of do I have all of the ideas. <laughs> so I have all of the ideas that I put them in the right place. And the, and the biggest issue with that, actually, and one of the difficulties of our time, as I've mentioned over and over again, is that the biggest issue for that is to meet people who put things in the right place. Right? Because what happens? If you see a room, if you go into a house and all of the stuff is in the right place, you don't even have to talk about it. You just go into the house and everything's in the right place. And you go back to your house and you're like, oh, maybe I should put this over there. Maybe I should put this here. Maybe that wasn't the right place for that, you know? All of it makes, it makes sense now. It's like all of the pieces were there, but it didn't make, it didn't, it didn't like click properly. And this is in addition to teaching the Qur'an and teaching the statements of the Prophet and all of these kind of things. What the Prophet did for the people is that he aligns them properly. This is how I do this thing. This is how I do that thing. And this thing I'm gonna adjust it a little bit. And this thing I'm gonna put it over here. And then it lines up properly. Okay, so the why, why am I saying this? Because this same idea, offer help before it's asked for. It's the same idea again. If you put it in the right place, it brings people together. You put it in the wrong place, it takes people apart. Right? So always it's like when I'm learning these matters of character, it's always how can I do this? How can I do this? How can I do this? One of the benefits of that too is that when I'm thinking about this for myself, then I recognize my own shortcomings in it. Right? So if I'm worried about how can I help other people before they ask for help, and then I look around my life and my relationships and I realize, oh, subhanAllah, there's a lot of times where I didn't do this. So then what's going to happen when, I, when on my side of things, I needed help and nobody reached out to me? I'm going to make excuses for them, right? Because I'm going to be like, well, I remember, like this, now that I'm thinking about it from my angle, I fell short on all of these different times. Maybe they have, and I had excuses, they probably have excuses too. Maybe they didn't recognize it, maybe they didn't realize it, so on and so forth. So then all of these things come together uh, better. It is narrated that a man went to visit his friend. When he knocked on his door, his friend said, why did you come? The man said, I need 400 dirhams to pay a loan of mine. Upon hearing this, his friend went inside his house, weighed 400 dirhams and gave them to the man. After this, his friend went back home crying. His wife asked him, If you cannot afford to give this amount of money, why didn't you find some excuses? He said, I'm not crying because I cannot afford the money. I'm crying because I have not checked up upon my friend to know his situation before he came and asked me for help. SubhanAllah. So do you understand that? So one person, person A, comes to person B, asks them for 400 dirhams. Person B gives them the 400 dirhams. And then after he gives him the 400 dirhams, he goes home crying. His wife asks person B, why are you crying? If you couldn't afford it, you didn't have to give it to him, you know? He says, I'm not crying because I didn't have the money. I'm crying because I should have known that he needed 400 dirhams before I had to ask. Before he had to come to me and ask, I should have known. Now this is, so he's crying about that, subhanAllah. It's amazing, huh? I always read, whenever I read the old stuff, I always think to myself, like, who are these people? These amazing, these amazing people, they're so interesting. Like, it would be so nice to sit with them, inshallah, if we ever get to Jannah. It would be so nice to sit with them and just be like, experience their company and see what they're like. And That's uh, amazing. Number 16, respond to misbehavior with kindness. Respond to misbehavior with kindness. Stop. Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu said, A man came to the Prophet and said, Messenger of Allah, I have relatives with whom I maintain ties while they cut me off. I am good to them while they are bad to me. They behave foolishly towards me while I am forbearing towards them. The Prophet said, If things are as you said, you will not lack divine aid as long as you continue to do that. 
You will not lack divine aid as long as you continue to do that. Right? So he says, I have these relatives. They don't keep ties. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They don't act in the best way. But I'm keeping ties with them. I'm maintaining relationship with them. The Prophet ﷺ told him, you will keep, aid of Allah will keep coming to you as long as you're doing that. Now, you already, I, some people are new, so we have to repeat it. Hopefully all of the people who are not new, you already have the exception in your head. What's the exception in your head? Anyone? What am I going to say? When we read this, half of, half of our heads are going in a certain direction. What is the answer to our heads going in this direction? Hmm? Abuse. Okay. Abuse is not what we're talking about here. Potentially. There's different levels of abuse. Okay. Let me give you an example because this is probably what I just said might confuse you a little bit. Okay. So normally, abuse is not what we're talking about here. It's not saying like, Ya Rasulullah, I go and I have this relationship with this relative. They just like treat me really horribly and really bad and it hurts me and it breaks me and so on and so forth. And I'm, but I'm keeping the relationship. Even still, maybe like, okay, but that's not necessarily what's being asked, right? But maybe there's someone who you go and like every time you go to them, you just have some conversation that's kind of useless. And they say some things that are a little bit annoying, but you maintain that relationship. You don't give up on them, so on. Sometimes even, I mean, think of this. MashaAllah, Muslims, we have big families, right? So usually you see it, MashaAllah. Usually there's someone in the family, even in American, traditional American culture, they talk about this, right? It's like there's always that one uncle that at the family barbecue, they show up <laughs> and they just cause problems, you know? Sometimes you're in the family. The reality is human existence has different layers to it. People have different responsibility, right? There might be an individual in the family who's actually like for all... As far as we can tell, the strongest person in the family. They're the most stable financially, they're the most stable emotionally, they're the most stable intellectually, they're the most stable in terms of their character, so on and so forth, right? Then at the same time in the family, usually you have someone who's a little bit of a wild card. You know, there's like that one family member who always needs help, or there's that one family member who um, just never has a job or there's you know there's always someone and we're not judging them for whatever reason it is there's always someone right the one who's kind of like in the position of being more responsible it may be that they need to take a little bit of harm from that other person it's okay you know sometimes you have family members who like they're kind of not well you know and every interaction you have with them is a little bit like okay alhamdulillah but it's okay like, I can tolerate it, it's alright, we're going to keep them. But it's not like every person we have a problem with, we throw them on the street so they can be homeless and just be stuck, you know? That's not, that's not the way that it, it should be. At the same time, we don't, we're not talking about taking abuse and like being harmed. And, so do you understand the, what I'm trying to say? I don't want it to go too far one way, I don't want it to go too far the other way. Okay? Um, some of the examples I gave last week, for example, in community life were probably not... Uh, they need to be understood with a lot of other things. You know? There's people sometimes in community life, every time they come to the masjid, they give you a hard time. There's one brother I remember, subhanAllah, every single time I saw him, we had a half an hour conversation in the parking lot. You should do this, you should do this, you should do that. So my wife would be messaging, she's like, you're not home yet. I'm like, yeah, you know. She already knew what was happening. <laughs> you know, I already know who got you in the parking lot, and like, you're there. But... I had enough flexibility in my life and in myself to be able to accommodate that half an hour conversation every time that it happened. So I accommodated the half an hour conversation every time it happened, you know? And you keep the people together. Sometimes you can't, you can't, right? I hope this is being understood, inshallah, and not in a way that's... Uh... Does anyone have any questions about what I'm saying? Okay. And again, it's not to... Uh... Like actually the person that, it's not, it's not a burden even. I don't even think it should be understood as a burden. Like part of community life is that we hold each other. And if someone has like a little bit extra, then it's a blessing that they can use that little bit extra for someone else. It's, it's not actually a burden. It's like, it's the way that it should be. It's the way human life is.
Number 16, respond to misbehavior with kindness. Uh, we just said that. When someone does something bad to you, how would you respond? Would you do a similar action? Would you forgive the person? Or would you respond with a better action? If someone has been wronged, he can respond in one of the following three ways. Number one, this is an interesting paradigm he uses here. I like, one of the things I like about Dr. Rajab, as we mentioned before, is he's kind of like an Islamic scholar, you know, Islamic studies. He's also a scholar of the Western tradition of social sciences. Like he's a scholar in sociology, he's a scholar in history, he's a scholar in philosophy, all of these kind of things. But since he's a scholar in Islam, he's able to bring Islamic concepts to bear in like very interesting ways, you know? So he's saying if you get wronged, there's three different responses you can have. Number one response is qizaz. It's retaliation in kind, or justice, right? Qizaz is justice. Someone kills one person, it's, they could be killed for it, right? Qizaz uh, provides for a punishment analogous to the offense. This is the level of sharia. This is the level of sharia. People at this level satisfy their inner sense of justice by responding to the evil done to them with a similar action. That's acceptable, okay? It's the level of sharia. Uh, inshallah, if I remember, I'll com there's three terms that are going to come up here in addition to the titles. If I remember, I'll comment on them afterwards. So that's the first level is qisas. Like, like for like. Level two is afu, forgiveness. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned afu in the Qur'an and stated that it is more virtuous than retaliation. But he did not make it obligatory. Forgiveness, this afu, is the level of tariqah. A person at this level prefers the reward that he will receive from Allah in the hereafter to any immediate material pleasure from revenge. So this person, they forgive, and they let it go. And they're preferring their reward with Allah over what they get here. Okay. Uh, so many, so many uh, caveats. Let me give a... So, if someone kills another person, right? Assume you're in a Muslim government. Someone kills another person. They bring the case to the court. When they bring the case to the court, they bring the family member of the person who was killed. The judge sees the evidences, listens to the witnesses. It's determined that this person did kill this other person. Okay, there's a judicial process. It's determined. Then, the judge tells the family, what do you want? The family has a choice by the Sharia. They can have punishment for death penalty. Family can take blood money, like take a monetary compensation. Family can forgive the person. Okay? Let's assume the family decides to forgive the person. Does the judge have to let it go without punishment? No. The judge does not have to let it go without punishment. Okay? Why am I saying this? Because we have to understand, as we always say, there's different angles to look at things, right? There's the personal level, a person might forgive it. But on a societal level, maybe they don't forgive it. Okay? So, I personally forgive you for this mistake that you did. Right? And you're not allowed to come here anymore. For example, maybe you have a masjid, someone gets out of line, they do something in the masjid that they really shouldn't do, and the administration of the masjid says, in order to preserve our community and to take our people in a certain direction and to have certain behavioral standards, this person has to have a consequence and they can't come back for X amount of time. Or maybe they can't come back at all, right? In my opinion, this is actually one of the most important rules of the administration of the masjid. <laughs> people don't like to hear it, it's a hard thing. But like sometimes, some people need to get kicked out of a masjid. Otherwise, you never have any Nothing like some line has to there has to be an understanding that there is a line if you cross this line It's not going to be okay you know? um, So Maybe but maybe the imam forgave the person maybe they did something to the imam. let's say Maybe even they did it to another congregant the other congregant says I forgive you on a personal level I forgive you but the masjid still says on a system level we can't, you can't come for X amount of time, you can't come until this happens or that happens. Okay, I understand. You know? So what happens on a personal level is not always what happens on the system level. Just 
keep this in mind. Number three is ihsan, responding to evil with good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised responding to evil with good in the Qur'an, but He did not order everyone to do so because He knew it would be difficult for some people. Responding to evil with good is the level of haqiqah. A person at this level responds to evil with good, overcomes his feelings of hatred and enmity, and voluntarily prefers the reward of Allah to the selfish pleasure of taking revenge. Our ancestors said, responding to evil with evil is the lay person's behavior, but responding to evil with goodness is the fatah's behavior is the behavior of the person with noble character. Uh, again, what, what is one of the important remember, things to take away from here is that qisas is okay. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. If someone was wronged and they want an equal response to that wronging that they, uh, that they experience, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You cannot shame them for that, you cannot look down upon them for that, you cannot think that they're wrong for that, none of that. And if they choose to take a higher road, then they choose to take a higher road. Okay? And uh, this concept that they're mentioning here of sharia and tariqah and haqiqah comes up a lot in different books. Basically the idea is that things can happen in different levels. Like things can happen, sharia level is like an outward reality. And haqiqa level is the actual reality. So understand again, it's one of these concepts that if you understand the layering of it, it actually unlocks certain things. Okay? So a very common question people will ask is you have these verses in the Quran that say essentially that uh, any good comes from Allah and any bad comes from you. Comes from you. You did it yourself, okay? And then another verse might say, "All good comes from Allah, and anything bad also comes from Allah." So you're like, "Wait a second! How do I understand this?" Right? From a Sharia perspective, the good is from Allah, and the bad is from you. It's the outward. It's the immediate outward reality of the situation. But the actual reality of the situation is everything comes from Allah. Haqiqa, the actual reality is everything comes from Allah. Do you understand? So it's, you're looking at it from a different angle. When you look at it from the other angle, then you're able to um, uh, reconcile, able to reconcile the concepts. So it's, and this one comes up a lot in people's lives. Like, but it's all for Allah. It's all from Allah, brother. That's, that's always true. It's always true that it's all from Allah. And it's also true that I have certain things that I'm responsible for in a physical sense. And there's not a contradiction. As long as I understand the difference of, in the, they say, that the, the angle that you're looking from, it's been split. When you split the angle and you understand, okay, this is not, I'm not looking at both of these things from the same place. I'm looking at these things from other sides. Then, it, then it's easy to understand. You guys understand what I'm saying? Is it, no? Alright, it's not easy to understand apparently. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said it that way. Um, so sometimes someone might say, let's say they're going through a difficulty. And they say it's from Allah. It's true that it's from Allah, right? But part of what they're saying when they're saying it's from Allah is, I've just accepted this is the way it is. They're kind of like passively dealing with it, you know? It's from Allah, throw my hands up. No. It's from Allah, and I don't throw my hands up. I believe 100% it's from Allah, and I believe 100% I have my own responsibility I have to do. So I have both. So, did it all come from Allah? Yeah, it all came from Allah. And just because it came from Allah doesn't mean I don't have responsibility. So there's a... Um, there's like the apparent material reality of things, and then there's the ultimate reality of things. Uh, so anyways, maybe it'll come up in other places too. We have stated throughout this book that Fatuwa is based on love and altruism, not on justice and retaliation. This approach is reflected in all the behaviors of the Fatah, who visits those who cut him off and donates to those who withhold from him, following the teachings of the Prophet وسلم, who said, maintain ties with those who cut you off. Donate to those who withhold good from you, 
and forgive those who wrong you. While doing so, what matters for the fatah is not what others do or think, but whether Allah will be pleased with him or not. In other words, the fatah, this righteous person, is doing all that they are doing for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Who is a good example of this? Sayyidina Abu Bakr right? In the end of Surah Al-Layl, uh, how does it go? الذي يؤتي ماله يتزكى ومال أحد عنده من نعمة تجزى. So what happened to Sayyidina Abu Bakr is that one of the people that he was financially supporting was also a family member, if I remember correctly, was one of the people who spread the rumor about his daughter. Right? About the, the rumor about his daughter and the Prophet them and saying that his daughter maybe was doing something. Hadith al-Ifq, this like great lie that happened against Sayyidina One of the people who spread it was the same person who's related to them and Abu Bakr is paying for his life basically. <laughs> and Abu Bakr was like, I'm not going to give this guy any money anymore. You know, why would I give this guy money? And the Prophet them basically indicated to him that he should continue. Like if he was giving it for Allah, he should still give it for Allah. It's a very high level, right? It's a very high level. And, so, and then Allah revealed these verses. The one who gives his money, he is purified. So who benefits from it is Abu Bakr. He's the one, he's the one who's being purified by this action that he's doing. And he's not expecting any reward from anyone. Right? Like he's really not expecting a reward from anyone because like the guy is doing it wrong in the first place. So it's, it's like very high level. Uh, again, part of why it's so important to understand this breakdown of these levels is that that's not for everyone. Right? It's not for everyone. Not everyone is going to be able to do what Abu Bakr did. And if it's not for everyone, it might not be for everyone in every case. Like someone might be able to have ihsan sometimes. And other times they have qisas. It's fine. This time, this time they want to, I have to get even here. And this time I'm going to forgive and I'm in process, I'm working, I'm trying to get better. And none of that's blameworthy. All of that is acceptable, right? Um, but not everyone's going to be Abu Bakr, right? When Sayyidina Umar came and he gave half of his wealth, like literally half of his wealth, you know? And it's probably fair to assume that he didn't have a mortgage, by the way. <laughs> I think about some of these stories sometimes. Like if you think about them, Imagine if you're in the time of the Prophet and you're financially stable. It's probably assumable that you aren't paying a payment on your home and you're not paying property tax either. Like your home is your home and it's done. So even if you give everything that you have, you still have your house and it's not going anywhere. You probably have some goats too. Like you can get some milk. Your neighbor probably has some dates. You can eat some dates. You're going to be all right. You're looking at it like, all right. Even if I give everything that I had, I could go for a couple months, I'm going to be able to weather this storm, I still got my house, like, I'm good to go. <laughs> it's not, so be careful when we understand these things in our context. It's like, alright, you have your home, but you just gave everything you had, but you're going to get evicted now. Or the bank's going to take your house from you, right? Like, this is not necessarily the same situation, okay? Even though people look like, it's amazing. If you look at it, you're like, subhanAllah, they had so much less. And at the same time, they're probably actually way more financially stable than most of us. SubhanAllah. Uh, this is a very interesting thing to think about. Uh, it's a screwed up system that we live in. Allah help us to bring good into the world. Um, so, Abu Bakr can, uh, Sayyidina Omar can come and he can give half of his wealth to the Prophet He's like, today I'm going to beat Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr comes, he gives everything. <laughs> <laughs> and Omar's like, Khalas, it's not, that was the day that Omar gave up. He's like always trying to compete with Abu Bakr. That was the day he gave up. He's like, that's it. I'm not going to be able to do it. Abu Bakr will always win. <laughs> you know, he came and he gave everything he had. So it's not everyone's going to be able to be Abu Bakr. Someone will be Omar. Someone will be Abdullah bin Saud. Someone will be this. Someone will be that. It's okay. This is a big problem. Why I have to emphasize this? Why am I beating this into our heads? Because in my experience, as someone who didn't grow up in the Muslim community, right, 
and has come to engage with the Muslim community afterwards is that one of the biggest issues we have in our community is a never-ending, constant guilt-tripping about everything. Everything. Guilt is the dominant discourse on every issue. On our food, it's guilt. On our house, it's guilt. On our clothes, it's guilt. On our home, it's guilt. On our job, it's guilt. On the place that we live, it's guilt. On the income that we make, it's guilt. On the Everything is guilt. Every single, from the top, bottom, the whole thing is guilt. It's a very problematic way to deal with the world. It's very problematic. It doesn't have to be like that. This, we've accustomed ourselves to this. It's easy for me to say maybe. People have done it your whole life. Maybe it's hard. <laughs> but like, I, I believe that we have to think about this a little bit. I believe that has major psychological, psycho-spiritual consequences. It's endless guilt tripping. So, so usually when we talk about something like this, what happens? You talk about this, you give these examples, so on and so forth. What happens afterwards? Anyone who doesn't do ihsan, we guilt trip them. My brother, why don't you, you need to step up higher, brother. You need to do better, brother. You need to do more, brother. Brother, you should be ashamed of yourself. Look what's happening in Palestine. You need to be better than this. The kids in Africa, they don't have any food on their plate. <laughs> Africa is a big place, by the way, in case people didn't know. But like the kids in Africa, they don't have any food on their plate. You have to eat every single thing on your plate. There's other ways we can say the same thing. Right? We can say like, Alhamdulillah, Allah gave us this food. Let's try to finish all of it. Let's try to show our gratitude to Allah for this blessing that we've been given. You're saying the same thing, you're saying it differently. Right? So, uh, I'm... I'm beating this point because I believe that it has far-reaching consequences. Allahu 17. Do not seek out people's private faults. Do not seek out people's private faults. It is virtuous to conceal others' faults, but it is even more virtuous not to seek out people's secret faults at all. Concealment of faults done in private is called sitr, and seeking out people's private faults is called tajassus. Sitr is illustrated in the following hadith narrated by Abdullah radiallahu anhu who said Yeah Hold on, I have to read this hadith because it might not be appropriate for all audiences Is, is there any 
in Omar's response and in the Prophet's response. Is there any guilt tripping? No. They came to him, he said, I did this thing and so on and so on. You know, it wasn't quite zina, but he said, I did other things less than zina. And Omar was just like, you don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell us. He's said, I'm like, brother, fear Allah. You're living with the Prophet and you're doing stuff like this. He didn't do any of that. He was just like, you don't have to tell me. Uh, the Prophet Allah reveals the verse. The verse says, do good deeds, it gets rid of the bad deeds. <laughs> do good, it gets rid of the bad. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Right? Keep doing good and keep moving forward. Keep doing good and keep moving forward. And uh, this is very important. So then someone asked, these very smart people, they said, Ya Rasulullah, this verse it was revealed in response to that question. Is it only for that guy? He said, no, it's not only for him, it's for everyone. This is a rule for everyone. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Yes. So is it because Quran gave this rise to the Right. That's a good question. So there's, again, a difference between public and private. So what he did was a sin, but it's not technically a crime. Okay? So he can just... Uh, and there's no recourse about it. So I made this sin, I seek forgiveness from Allah, I move on. Right? Maybe he did something that's a crime, but it could be dealt with without having to take it in front of the court. So let's say, for example, that the guy was walking by someone else's house and he saw like this really beautiful piece of pottery and he was like, that looks like a nice piece of pottery, it'd be great in my kitchen. So he grabbed a piece of pottery and he steals it, right? So obviously accountable for that. Obviously this is a public offense, right? But before he does anything about it, he realizes, you know what? This was wrong what I did. I'm just going to go back and put this there. And he returns it. Still he doesn't have to actually tell. The right was returned. Situation is dealt with. Just seek forgiveness from Allah. Even some things like the cases of zina that happened in the time of the Prophet The Prophet was essentially telling some of these people, like, you don't have to do this. He made them confess four times. So it's like, if you would have just... This is technically a crime in the Sharia. But it's not the kind of crime that you need to confess about. You can keep this to yourself. Now, had he had the person, like, uh, I don't know, broken the window of a store or, like, done something that they can't, there's not really any recourse to it other than to have a public situation of it, then that's how you fix it, you know? Allahu uh, alam. There might be some details I'm missing, but like, uh, cases can, can vary. But here the idea is that if someone did something wrong and it can be fixed, and it's not like without it becoming a public thing, they can keep it secret, just deal with it. And if things have been hidden, they should keep them hidden. Again, this is not, this is not going to apply to abuse, it's not going to apply to, we've already, all of the disclaimers that are normally put, we add them, right? Doesn't apply to abuse, doesn't apply to like significant harm that's been caused to another person and all of this kind of, someone who's like a threat to the public safety, there's a general harm involved. None of these things would be applying here. But it's like, I don't know, like, someone made a mistake and you saw them make the mistake. You don't have to tell people. So there's no reason to tell people, you don't have to tell people. Right? Let them handle their mistake, let them move on. Yes, yes. Are you sure? It's it's a continuation of that on um, when do the rulings of like stoning, placing a and cutting the arm come in? Yeah. So the thing about stoning for zina is that really it's not going to happen unless someone gets blessed. 
for the most part. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to witness in a way that would warrant this penalty because you have to have four eyewitnesses to the actual act, which is like very difficult to do, right? Unless it's uh, uh, extremely just perverse or something. But so anytime that it, most of the time when it happened, I shouldn't, I don't want to say every time, but uh, it's usually because someone confessed and they said it and they confessed four times. Come to the, they come to the court on four different occasions and they confess. Um, the stealing issue would be like if there were witnesses and it was the person was arrested, they were brought in front of the court and stuff like that. Then it could be proven. But it could be dealt with out, outside of court too. You know, sometimes people just be like, okay, caught the person, you give it back to me, like don't do this again type stuff. You know? Allahu alam. There's probably some details there. As I've told you guys before, some of these issues, uh, if you don't review them, you don't remember them. And if you're doing Islam in America, you don't really review them because they're not the kind of things people are like coming every day and asking about. So, but that's just off the top of my head. And every year that passes, it gets worse for me because now I haven't reviewed these things for... Uh, Eleven and a half years, <laughs> probably. 11. It's been over ten years, probably, since I've reviewed any of these questions on public law. You know, uh, so sitr. The hadith illustrates the value of the ethical principle of sitr and indicates that faults made in private are better concealed. The importance of staying away from seeking out others' private faults to justice is illustrated in the following hadith narrated by Abdullah bin Mas'ud who said, Zayd bin Wahib said. A man was brought to Ibn Mas'ud, he was told, this is so-and-so, and wine was dripping from his beard. Abdullah thereupon said, we have been prohibited to seek out faults. If anything becomes manifest to us, we shall seize it. It's hard to say what. This hadith emphasizes the importance of staying away from suggestions and shows that seeking out others' faults is an immoral act. Don't seek people's faults. Like, why are you looking for that? There is wine seen in his beard. Why were you looking for that? Just shouldn't have been paying attention that closely. Instead of seeking out others' faults, the Fatah concentrates on his own faults and shortcomings and tries to constantly improve himself as at the moral and spiritual levels. Okay. I'm going to make a comment on that. I'm going to read the next one's title. And then I'll make a comment on this. And then we can open for questions and things. Next one's title is Visit Your Relatives Without Being Invited and Avoid Taklif and Tekeluf. Very important. Avoid taklif and takalluf and visit your friends and relatives. Inshallah, we'll talk about that one next time. A last point on this idea of sitr. A last point on sitr. Sitr means to conceal something. Okay? Sitr means to conceal something. We're talking about it here in the context of concealing other people's sins. Which in general is a praiseworthy thing. And there are definitely cases where there's a public harm or a greater harm or something where it is not permissible to conceal their sins. And this is something that we see very commonly. And uh, this is a common misunderstanding that comes up in public Muslim life. Uh, and again, we have to be attentive to ourselves and we have to ask ourselves why certain things might bother us. You know? Like sometimes... Um, People say, well, why are, you, why are you exposing this person's sins? You know? Well, because they're in, a person, they're in a position of public responsibility and, and certain sins are the business of the public when a person is in, the, in a public responsibility. So I'm not exposing it. This is, this is actually needed to happen. And that's what, that's what was supposed to happen, right? Um, but you're supposed to conceal their sins. Well, That's, this is not what that applies to. Okay? It's not what it applies to. Um, you know, the sister, she shouldn't have complained about this or this or that. Well, she was being very harshly mistreated. Why are, why are you just telling her to be patient and to not tell anyone about it? That's wrong. This is not the case of, this is not a case of sitr. They should have sitr. No, they shouldn't have sitr. They should have justice. And we shouldn't be so 
uncomfortable with doing what needs to get done, that we're willing to allow oppression to occur in the name of some other principle misused. No. Like, okay, we have to do what needs to get done. Uh, that being said, an important point about sitter is outside of this uh, public discourse and sins, more broadly, sitter is a very important concept in Islamic civilization and our entire worldview. Right? So women will dress a certain way in, in the Sharia. Men will also dress a certain way in the Sharia. Like you will not find, and I'm not, please uh, don't, uh, I'm, don't take anything that I'm saying as an attack on anyone. There's no judgment on particular individuals. There's no, I'm trying to make anyone feel bad. It's not the point at all. Uh, and usually I don't even bring up the women's side because you know, it usually gets male teachers in trouble and it's better someone else does it. But on the male side even, uh, we should look, like, alhamdulillah for the photograph, it's actually possible to find old pictures. Like, see, what did men dress like in Muslim lands? It's very interesting, you know? And, and don't say like, okay, well the weather's hot and stuff like that. Their weather was hot, you know? Cairo was hot, Arabia was hot, <laughs> East Africa was hot, West Africa's hot, like the, the, everywhere is hot. Just, Southern California is not unique in this way. Uh, Sindh is hot, you know? But there are certain ways that people dressed. Men dressed in certain ways. Like they had, usually it was very long, clothes was very loose. Um, and that, why? Because it's part of It's part of concealing what a, what, it's a, it's a type of concealment, right? And even when it comes to like the good that a person does, generally they try to conceal it, right? Even when it comes to a person and their relationship with Allah, say a person who's very close to Allah, they treat that relationship like they treat uh, their, their personal romantic life, right? Like with their spouse. Usually whatever love and things that we have with our spouses, we're not always like putting it in front of everyone else, right? That's like something that we have with each other. And that's between us. Uh, same thing with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. People would, like, you have people who are very serious about their relationship with Allah and they don't show that all the time. It's not that they're doing something wrong, it's just that you're not seeing the depth of what's there because they'd rather conceal it so that it can be between them and Allah. Right? Uh, people can sometimes be extremely knowledgeable and they conceal it. Right? Uh, I've told the story before of someone that uh, I've told a story before of someone that you know we hope